2: The water in the Gulf of Mexico is warm in the summer, but my girls will wade into it any time of the year, even if it's freezing.
3: Shoot. I shoot. Okay, put them on the stairs.
2: That's one of the reasons why we come here. We like to visit Port Aransas in August, right before their school starts, which is what we did in 2017. But we missed one of the worst times in the history of the Texas coast by one week. NPR affiliate KUT show The Texas Standard reported on Hurricane Harvey.
4: I'm David
5: Brown. As cleanup crews converge on Houston just a bit to the east, it's still very much rescue mode from the heart of the Golden Triangle. This is The Texas Standard.
2: Becky Fogle did a story on the impact Hurricane Harvey had on foster kids. The Texas Department of Family and Protective Services says 1,200 foster children were safely relocated as a result of Hurricane Harvey. Patrick Crimmins is a spokesperson for the Child Welfare Agency. He says they began to prepare as soon as they knew the storm was coming.
1: One of the things about this that we were concerned about was that a lot of our residential capacity for foster kids is in the Corpus Christi South Texas, Houston area.
2: That includes residential treatment centers that provide in-house counseling and mental health services for foster kids. Foster care will become pivotal to the story of Dorothy Simons' family. Hurricane Harvey caused an incredible amount of damage in Aransas Pass, where the Simons once lived. I talked with newspaper publisher John Bowers about the storm. Tell me about the hurricane, what the impact of the hurricane was, specifically on Aransas Pass.
1: It was a Category 4 storm, came through Port Aransas, flattened Port Aransas. The eye of it came between Aransas Pass and Rockport, but we got hit real hard.
2: And John says that it ripped apart the office of the town's only newspaper, the Aransas Pass Progress.
1: When I opened the front door, the carpet was warped. Out of shape, like water had been standing. All the furniture had gotten wet and was pretty much ruined. It smelled terrible, it was like. But anyway, it was the interior was totally messed up, totally destroyed. And now we're fighting a virus on top of that.
2: Luckily, by 2017, John had sent most of his old newspapers to a university to get digitized. John calls his archive of newspapers the morgue.
1: All my morgue Mm -hmm. went to UNT. Okay. All of it. And it's a good thing it did because a hurricane would have destroyed it. Yeah. Because the hurricane peeled the roof up right over where my morgue was. And so the papers were gone. But I sent it all up to UNT because I wanted it scanned and put on the website.
2: So all of those newspapers from The Progress were saved. And I'm not sure I would have been able to do this story if he hadn't done that. I found dozens of articles online about the murder of Dorothy Simons, but once her boyfriend Newton Yarberry was free, Dorothy's story began to disappear. Toward the end of fall 1931, there seemed to be a sense of normalcy in Aransas Pass. The district attorney had tried Newton Yarberry twice for Dorothy's murder. Both trials had ended in hung juries. Newton was now free, but nothing was normal in the Simons' home. The months after Dorothy's murder were incredibly painful for her entire family. Agnes and Howard's marriage grew increasingly strained and hostile. They both seemed so different, very angry. They no longer fit into the community. The Yarburys had won. Dorothy's death seemed insignificant to most people in Aranzas Pass. How could no one have been punished for this? Dorothy's bedroom was empty and dark. The hallways were quiet. The vacant seat at the breakfast table was a constant reminder of her absence. While the Simons family remained isolated, those who cared for them prayed that the family would eventually make peace with what happened. Wishful thinking. We're at a point in the story that I find particularly painful. I mentioned that we'd be taking some dark turns this season— This is another one. After the murder trials were over, Agnes Simons was left to cope. She was emotionally shattered, and as hard as she tried, the pain was too much. Agnes suffered from a nervous breakdown. She cried, she raged, and she seemed uncontrollable. So Howard Simons did what many husbands did when their wives seemed too emotional or even just uncooperative. He had her committed to a mental health facility. In the 1930s, and for hundreds of years before then, it was legal for men to institutionalize women for acting depressed or for lashing out or for even not taking proper care of other family members. Women were called hysterical and out of control as an excuse to have them committed. It was also a way for men to cover up abuse. We saw that in the Gabby Petito case— The Moab City Police Department released body cam footage from officers who stopped Gabby and her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie. They were on a cross-country road trip and were stopped in Utah in August of 2021. Someone had reported seeing Laundrie hit Gabby.
5: What's your guys' names?
6: Gabby.
5: Gabby, Brian, okay. What's going
7: on? How come you're crying? I'm sorry. We've
6: just been fighting this morning. Some personal issues. I was distracting him from driving. I'm sorry.
7: Can I
5: get you to step out of the vehicle for me, now?
6: Yeah.
2: On the body cam footage, you can hear Gabby trying to downplay the violence.
6: I don't know. We've just been fighting all morning, and and he wouldn't let me in the car before. And then Why I, wouldn't he let you in the car? Because <laughs> you he told, of me the OCD? Need, told me I needed to calm down. And yeah. <laughs> but I'm perfectly calm. I'm calm all the time. And this is a rough morning.
2: When the police talked to Laundry, he called her crazy—a common description meant to discredit the victim in an abusive relationship.
5: She just got you know, worked up because we were trying to get going and get her day going. Okay. You, you want to tell me about those scratches on your face? She hit itself on her hand. That's why I was pushing her away. I said, "Let's just take a breather and let's
3: not, you know, go anywhere. Let's just calm down for a minute." She just got worked up.
2: And it worked. Police quickly accepted Laundrie's framing and turned their attention to Gabby's personality. Is he usually pretty patient with you? Yeah,
4: thank you. but I guess it just makes
5: me upset. I know that he definitely like, gets frustrated with me
6: a lot. I'm not telling you what to do with your life, but if you know you have anxiety, look at the look at the situations you can get in.
0: You know what I mean? Yeah.
2: The police missed the signals of domestic violence, and officers released both of them. It would wind up being Gabby's last chance to escape the situation.
0: So at this point, from what unless
6: the guy's screaming that he needs to go to jail and did something to this girl, it sounds to me like she
8: is the primary aggressor now. Yeah.
2: About a month later, Gabby's body was found. Laundrie had murdered her. And then a month after that, Laundrie's body was discovered. He had died by suicide. In 1931, Agnes Simons was also called crazy. Howard claimed that she needed help, and maybe she did. I asked Agnes's daughter-in-law, Helen Simons, about Howard's decision. What were the things that landed her in the institution to begin with? What prompted Howard to have her institutionalized.
4: I don't know other than that, if she heard someone putting Dorothy down, that would have been the bottom for her. But
5: did Agnes talk to you at all about her time in the institution
4: well you hear so much about treatment and when someone is incarcerated like that and she said well oh, they treated me well in fact she said i had treatments i talked to dr so-and-so she mentioned the doctor's name for about six months and he said i was ready to go home after she was there only about six months that's when she started working in the office of this hospital. I said, what would you do in the office? And she said, well, just office work. I, if people came up, they had to be admitted.
2: She couldn't check herself out?
4: No, because Howard had put her in there. I said, well, I thought you said the uh, sheriff so-and-so. And she said, well, the sheriff took me up there, but Howard had to admit me. And I could not leave with just the sheriff taking me out he had to take me out. He had to sign me out because he was the one that was in charge of me.
5: Sounds like Agnes really confided in you a
4: lot more than
5: anybody
4: else. She lived with us for quite a while. She would have treated people however they treated her, probably. And if you were looked down on because of you've been in an institution, that's just the way it was going to be, and she couldn't do anything about that. The only thing she noticed about the friends, but she said the friends that I had were still friends when I finally got back on my feet. But uh, some of the kids that Joe played with He couldn't play with anymore.
2: Helen's husband, Joe, was just a child when Agnes was institutionalized. He must have been so frightened to see his mother being taken away. And Howard Simons didn't make things easy on his son. He actually made them much worse. While Agnes was undergoing inpatient treatment for mental illness, Howard put Joe into foster care. But he allowed his other son, David, to remain with him, Which seems odd to me. Why would Howard take David, but not Joe? I asked David's daughter, Nancy, about why that might have happened. Why only take David?
5: Why do you think Howard made that choice to take Dave and to leave Joe
9: behind? I have no idea because I do not have an understanding of what their relationship was. I know dad his whole life, it's curious because he thought that Joe was the chosen one and yet he was in foster homes.
2: While she was hospitalized, I wonder if Agnes had any say about what should happen to her own children or if Howard had even told her that he had broken up the family. Agnes grew bitter over the years. She didn't get along with most people but Agnes's granddaughter Nancy remembers her fondly.
5: Tell me about Agnes as you knew her.
9: I knew her as me being the beloved granddaughter, the oldest of the rest of the children, therefore it was someone that perhaps she could relate to more because the other children were much younger. And I just remember her, she was very, very kind to me but we had a different relationship than I'm sure she had with the rest of the world.
5: And also, just think of her life. Um,
9: I can't even imagine. Married to Howard,
5: who sounds like might not have been the best choice, who knows, I don't know.
9: I think he he was a womanizer, and my dad was a womanizer. He was seeing women all the time on the side. I mean, we didn't know it specifically growing up, but in retrospect, it's evident that that was the case
5: that her understanding was that Howard was threatening to leave Agnes for years. And she said, you're, you're not going anywhere. You're going to stay here and help me raise these kids. That is a horrible situation.
9: Yes, yes. What a great partnership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm being cynical, well, of course.
2: <laughs> Howard seemed to care far more about himself than focusing on what would be best for his family. He would eventually leave Agnes for another woman, But again, I don't know Howard's side to all of this. Agnes Simons showed her own personal grit and strength of character. She finished her mental health treatment and was released from the institution. By this time, Howard was gone. He left David with Agnes, and she took Joe out of foster care. You might assume that David was happy with his father. He had been chosen. Not really, says his daughter Nancy she got the sense that her dad might not have been better off with his father than Joe was in foster homes.
9: Perhaps dad was worse off, perhaps, I don't know, living with his father, who also apparently, I don't know if he was a womanizer or not, but I, I feel that that could be the possibility. He had a temper and dad had a temper. So... That was oil and water to begin with as far as the two of them living together. That's all I know of that.
5: Yeah, I think so. So do you feel like, you know, we talked a little bit about your dad before. Your dad had a lot of anger and a lot of drinking and a lot of that you feel like had to do with maybe Howard's influence or just simply in general, what happened, how his life shifted after Dorothy died.
9: I think it was a combination of all of those things and whatever DNA Agnes and Howard had passed down to him because both of them had very strong personalities themselves. And we talk about alcoholism today and it being in our DNA one way or another. And I know in our entire family, there has been alcoholism. Tell me about that. It's a combination of things in dad but he was also combative. He was so angry and, and lashed out. And he definitely had that. He was like 5'8", and cocky, and would put his fists up and be ready to take somebody on in you know a bar fight or that
2: kind of thing. As I dug into the story, I often found myself trying to piece together a picture of who Agnes Simons really was. She was born into a wealthy family in Indiana, and then she first married a man far below her social status, Ralph Johnson. By all accounts, he was an unreliable husband and a negligent father to Dorothy, not to mention a potential criminal with alleged mafia ties. And we also know what happened with her second husband, Howard, at the end of their marriage. I asked Helen about why her mother-in-law seemed drawn to men who might not have always treated her well.
5: Why do you think she had such poor taste in men, <laughs> at least Ralph and Howard. She's from a wealthy family, intelligent. She you know, was. I why she's drawn to these bad people.
4: I don't know, unless they played up to her, because uh, she was very intelligent.
5: Maybe
2: naive. You can be intelligent, but still naive. And that might have been part of it. Yes, that very well could have been. J.B. Simons, Agnes's grandson, really admired his grandmother.
8: Oh, she worked crossword puzzles all her life, and she could work a crossword puzzle in what, fifteen minutes? It was,
4: and she worked them in ink. (laughs) I was (laughs) always surprised me. I said, I had to have a pencil with
2: an eraser. (laughs) Agnes's life could have been happy despite everything she had been through. She could have had years of contentment playing word games and enjoying time with her children and grandchildren, but that's not what happened. Agnes never really recovered from Dorothy's death or Howard's betrayal. Her grandson, J.B. Simons, wonders if Agnes's suffering was so severe that his mother, Helen, instinctually tried to protect her by avoiding all talk about Dorothy.
8: I don't know. I really don't know. I've never asked Mom, has Grandma ever talked to you about Dorothy or anything like that? It just kind of left it in the air. I really appreciate Kicking up the dust a little bit here, kid.
2: (laughs) David's daughter, Nancy, also believes that his grandmother, Agnes, suffered mental agony so deep that she never recovered.
9: She was extremely devastated by the murder of her daughter. All I know are stories because, obviously, I wasn't even alive then. I know that granddad, apparently, while she was in the asylum got hooked up with another lady and eventually married her and dumped Agnes. I'm sure that changed their life then because dad then was raised or half raised, whatever, by Agnes after she got out of the asylum. And meanwhile, Joe was then put in foster homes all along the way. So it was uh, devastating to their entire family, definitely.
2: J.B. Simon says that once David and Joe and Agnes were reunited, Agnes still didn't seem at peace. Life for the three of them was really hard.
8: Grandma was just going through the paces of being a mother that did the right things for her boys, even though she she had almost nothing she she took in laundry and did ironing and that kind of you know the typical kind of things that you know ladies did back in the 30s 40s she worked at a drugstore, store i think something up in fort wayne and uh you know kate i think that the way that my grandmother lived her life just her nose slightly above the poverty line my feeling is that she felt she deserved that in what way that she should have been able to protect her daughter you know classic kind of mother instinctual kind of things that when a child is is killed or dies and that she just um you know became a sad and angry and uh resentful old woman
5: do you think that if dorothy had not been killed that agnes would be would have been a different person
4: oh my goodness yes
2: absolutely Over the course of many conversations with the Simons family, I started to see a pattern, and I can't say it surprised me. Sorrow and hurt deeply affected their lives, everyone's lives. Dorothy's brother David seemed to be incredibly impacted. He was a boy who began a promising life with his family in Aransas Pass. But after Dorothy's death, David moved with Howard to another town, and David became very angry. We don't know why, and it's not fair for anyone to speculate. But he returned to Aransas Pass as a troublemaker who developed into a troubled man. David's daughter Nancy shared some painful family memories with me.
6: You know,
5: you talked to me a little bit about your father and, and some of the troubles that he had, had. You said that you felt like he had some, some pretty big anger issues and some drinking issues. Isn't
9: that right? That's an understatement. Yes, on both accounts. Yes, that is correct.
5: And it never changed. Did it get
9: worse? There was a Thanksgiving dinner where he he would come home drunk from some kind of something with work or whatever and went out with the boys and that kind of thing. One night, I still have a clear picture of him emptying the refrigerator and throwing it against the dining room wall and stuff, splattering the cranberry juice and everything running down the wall where he was just angry and throwing things and yelling. And that's, that's how he lived his life. And... We tried to survive in the meantime.
5: Was it just consistent for your entire time with him?
9: It was consistent until he began to get beat up by emphysema from smoking too much, the alcohol, and began to wind down some as far as being cranky and angry and you know combative because his body wouldn't let him. But he was always, always cantankerous.
2: I've learned so much about internal family struggles while researching Dorothy's story. Retired law school professor Linda Frost helped explain how they can shift family dynamics when someone leaves the family for any reason. Really what you're talking
4: about is the impact of trauma. And we know that trauma, if it's not addressed, can have really significant and long-lasting impacts. And that trauma can be the event itself. It can be the, the fracturing of the family afterwards. It can be removing somebody from society through incarceration. There's all sorts of trauma in there. Many times we're not good at addressing that or even acknowledging that it exists.
2: I talked earlier about the Gabby Petito case and missing white woman syndrome. The family trauma associated with cases that still haven't been solved is a major issue. And for some communities, crimes are even more likely to go unsolved because they involve people of color. Natalie and Derricka Wilson are sisters-in-law. We talked to them earlier about their nonprofit organization, the Black and Missing Foundation. You might have also seen their fantastic HBO special. I asked Natalie about why she and Derricka started Black and Missing. Did you all come up with this together? I know you're in-laws, is that how the organization started?
3: Well, the inspiration behind the Black and Missing Foundation, there was a young lady by the name of Tamika Houston, and she went missing from Derricka's hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina. And we were talking about how her family really struggled to get media coverage. And her aunt, who is in my profession, media relations, really struggled to get you know national media to cover her story. And Natalie Holloway disappeared, I think it was a year later, and she dominated the news cycle. And you're shaking your head, so you know who Natalie Absolutely. Um, Holloway everyone else does. And we were really disheartened that Tamika couldn't get the coverage. I mean, her aunt reached out to the same reporters, same news station, same programs, and there were no interests in Tamika's story at all.
2: Because she was a person of color... Tamika's body was found a year later, and her ex-boyfriend confessed. He was sentenced to life in prison. Natalie and Derricka say that research shows people of color make up about 40% of the missing population. They need help closing a lot of cases. Natalie, can we talk about funding? What what do you all do for funding?
3: Well, right now most of our funding comes from individual donors. We are looking for a grant writer, but we can do so much more as an organization and build our team, bring more people on board if we had that financial support from our community. So that's very, very important.
2: These aren't the only cases Black and Missing have worked on.
0: I think The perfect case was shown in our documentary with Kennedy High, who went missing autistic teenager and you heard from the commander himself who didn't feel that her case elevated to have more resources dedicated. They were not actively looking for her. And it was very nonchalant and very casual. It wasn't until, you know, someone else got involved in the department. It wasn't until we got involved because her mother reached out to us. And so we were applying pressure as well. So it really shows the impact of media when her mother reached out to us, our partnership with the media to get her mother the assistance that she needed. That in turn applied pressure to law enforcement to dedicate more resources to the case. And then, you know, we were able to find her. And I think what's so important about her case is that the tipster contacted our organization and not the police. Wow. Because again, it goes back to that lack of trust. They never took the case seriously in the very beginning.
2: Kennedy had been lured from her school by someone on a dating app. Thankfully, she was found alive five days later. Now Natalie and I talk about Tamela Nicole Wells.
3: Tamala Wells, as a matter of fact, just spoke to her mother yesterday. Um, Tamala was 43. She disappeared on, I believe it was August the 6th of 2012 from Detroit. You know, her mother has no idea what has happened to her baby. I mean, even though she's a grown woman, I mean, she left a young daughter and I believe a son behind and no one has a clue as to what happened to her. Her mother believes it could be a domestic violence matter, but they don't have any evidence to prove that.
2: And then she never hears anything else from the police? Is that what happens in these cases?
3: Well, that is what happened with Tamala's case. Even to today, her mother is continuing the fight to get any type of support from the police department and she's getting the runaround and she doesn't believe that they're taking Tamala's case seriously. I mean, she's also investigating and providing them tips that she heard from the community and they're not taking this case seriously. So she's very frustrated. She's, you know, heartbroken because it's been since 2012 that Tamala has been missing. But she continues to fight to find out what happened to Tamala And another
2: potential case of domestic violence. It's unbelievable.
0: You know, no one disappears off the face of this earth without a trace.
2: Losing your child and possibly not finding out what happened has to be devastating. And as we've said all along, it can resonate across generations. And that's exactly what happened to the Simons family. But what about Dorothy's accused killer and the retired investigator who dug into her case... What happened to them? It's time to wrap up some lingering questions. I found out quite a lot about Newton... Seven years after Dorothy's murder, he married a woman named Juanita Clara McComb, who was a year younger than he was. Two years later, Newton was drafted to serve in World War II. When that happened, he was still working for Humble Oil and Gas. After the war, Newton stayed in Aranza's Pass, despite the suspicions of some that he had gotten away with murder. In 1954, after 16 years of marriage, Newton's wife died at age 45 of cancer. Newton remarried, but I couldn't figure out when. His new wife was named Ethel Frances Miller, and they never had any children. In 1972, Ethel died at age 58 from lung cancer. Four months later, Newton was living alone in their home on Saunders Street in Aransas Pass. He was 65 and a retired construction worker. When neighbors hadn't seen him for a while, they discovered Newton dead inside his house. He had apparently been there for several days. The coroner ruled that he died from heart disease. And that was the end of the story for Newton Yarbury. Now let's talk about Bill Strain and his investigation into this case. He told his wife very little about the murder of Dorothy Simons. Did you get the impression that he felt like he made any headway on that case?
7: I think in an odd way, he probably felt deep down that he might be able, if he went back into this case, find some something, you know, and answer the questions that he had about Dorothy's death. He was completely obsessed with finding all that he could about her. You used an
2: interesting word, which is obsession, which is, of course, common for people who are interested in true crime to dig your fingers into a case. How, from your point of view, did that manifest itself?
7: You know, I knew he was perfectly happy where he was all day and half the night on his computer. I didn't nose around much. As I think of it, he's always kind of had a little bit of a, a secretive side where I'm concerned.
2: I have seen the binder. It is really impressive and it's very, very thick. Did he talk to you about it?
7: No, no, I, I don't even know that I've seen the binder. I had no idea about this uh, notebook thing. I, I don't think I've ever seen that.
2: There's no big mystery about the binder, at least for me. Michael Strain loaned it to me. It had every article you could imagine about Dorothy and some photos of her. Each item was carefully preserved in plastic. The last time I met with Bill's son, I returned it to him.
6: Hey,
2: how are you? Good. Let me grab the book. How goes it? Fine. Thank you. I appreciate How's it. going it. on the podcast? It's going well. Just, you know,
1: plugging away. Can
3: you
2: advise what's all going on? Oh, I will. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it, Michael. I wonder if Bill Strain just wanted to keep Dorothy's memory to himself another woman he loved, even though he was just a boy when she died. I asked Karen Kilgariff about how true crime can affect people who aren't directly connected. What have you heard as far as the personal toll goes for people who just become fixated on a case?
6: I can only really speak for like what I've observed or what I've experienced myself, which is how you draw those boundary lines in getting involved with something, and and if you even do. I think that's real sticky for like an online sleuth. What haven't they thought of? What aren't they looking at? Could fresh eyes actually make a difference? It all becomes its its own mystery and it's almost the onion starts to peel and that becomes, it's the mystery within the mystery. I asked
2: Michael Strain to read from his father's blog again. Remember, Bill didn't have the benefit of reading the articles about Newton that I read. Let's get through this and then we'll sure. talk about the specific story. When I began this research, kind of right in the middle. When I began this research,
1: I presumed that if Newton were guilty, he would distance himself from the crime. A killer might move to California, but here we have Newton remaining for the remainder of his life within three miles of the crime scene. This testimony raises some very basic questions. Was there some basic flaw within Newton that was never explored? Was Newton mentally deficient so as to never learn to drive or hold a job? Were Newton's parents so afraid for his future that they kept him within arm's reach for the rest of his life?
2: Bill had a dream one night before he died in January of 2019. There was a note on his refrigerator that read, Wrap it up, you're done. And from that day forward, Bill Strain stopped researching Dorothy Simons. Why don't these, the lack of answers, why didn't this drive your dad crazy? Did it, or? I don't think so.
1: You know, I think, like he said, once he got that note on the refrigerator door that said, you know, wrap it up, you're done, he was done.
2: Michael later found some of those answers in an online newspaper database. He discovered that Newton had gotten married, that he had served in World War II, and that he had no children. Michael scanned the articles and made a PDF for his father. But after decades of obsessing over this case, Bill Strain never bothered to open the file. And you know, these questions he
1: asked there, those were really answered in that PDF file I sent him. It's not that hard to open up a PDF file. When I went down, if he said, "Mike, can you open up that PDF file?" But it, it was really like he didn't want to know that. You know, the, the answers were there, but my dad died not knowing, and and it was knowable. I had the information, but it just, you know, he 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 didn't didn't pursue it.
2: Ask Michael to read one last blog entry just to sum up Bill's final questions.
1: Why did he have to kill you, Dorothy? Were you pregnant? Was he afraid of his parents and what they would do if they found out he was bringing home a wife for them to support? Were you jealous, Newton, because you saw Dorothy walking with another man? Or did you have some deep genetic flaw and kill her just to see what it felt like? And of course, there's the eternal question, Newton, were you innocent?
2: That's a question we'll never be able to answer. One nice thing came of all of this. Remember when Agnes' husband, Howard, kept David and put Joe in foster care? It turns out that wasn't a bad thing. Joe was placed with several different families while he was in the system. He integrated well and became friends with several of his foster siblings. And the parents treated him with kindness and offered him the love he might not have gotten at home. Joe was actually upset when Howard agreed to bring him back home. Joe's granddaughter Kelsey Simons is proud of her grandfather's tenacity. He just took it
4: in stride it sounds like which is amazing to me. Like normally like somebody who goes through that at such a young age being thrown through foster care usually doesn't come out of it that well put together, but knowing all that I'm like damn grandpa.
2: <laughs> Joe died in 2005 of lung cancer. Joe's son, JB, says that his dad showed his wife and children nothing but kindness and love and support.
8: I think one of the side effects for dad was that family became everything, that no matter how tough things got, he would never, ever abandon the family for any reason whatsoever because of what he went through.
2: On our last visit to the Texas coast, I asked my parents to go with me to Dorothy Simon's grave site in Aransas Pass to understand why visiting this cemetery is so important to the story.
6: It's a cute little cemetery. Little
2: buttercup things.
6: Except it's right by a major highway. Yeah. Well, probably
2: wasn't a, major, wasn't a major highway when she was nope. buried here, I guess.
1: Nope. It was probably a small dirt road.
2: It's small and on the side of a busy road. It's not very well kept, but we finally found her marker.
6: This one here? Yep. That's her. Oh, her. I wonder who you um, put the... Head, the headstone? The headstone there. Her parents or Yeah, it was her parents. All these pretty little wildflowers around here.
2: So, Mom, you told me when we talk about things about death and everything that how important burial, you feel like cemeteries are very important. Why do you feel like it's important, not for you personally to be buried, but just, you know, why is it important to have this, to come here?
6: People always want to feel like they're being remembered, no matter how they died.
2: I don't know if this gets visited very much. There's no fresh flowers or anything, but I don't know if, I don't think she has any family anymore around here.
6: Yeah, but we found it. I think people always yeah, people always remember as long as there are cemeteries and headstones, and I think that's the point of it. Sad,
9: really, really sad. A life cut so short. You expect things like that in war, but this just a young lady trying to live her life.
6: And it ended in such a such a bad, bad way. Just the nasty, humiliating way that she was killed and the way she was left in that place.
2: Dorothy's niece, Nancy Coppage, told me that despite all of the echoes from Dorothy's murder almost 100 years ago, her family will always stay together.
9: It's a tough family, that's for sure. We're tough. <laughs> we power through, that's for sure.
2: Dorothy Simons died at 18, such a young age. She could have done anything in life with her lovely personality and her caring nature. Dorothy seemed to hold her family together. And now so many more people know her story, and I understand the loss. Before Bill Strain died, he said that soon no one would know anything about Dorothy Simons. Her story would vanish, and she wouldn't even be a memory to anyone. I hope not. Thanks for joining us on these three seasons of Tenfold More Wicked. Next Monday, listen to our trailer for our new season of Wicked Words on Exactly Right. On that show, I interview journalists and writers about their most important true crime stories. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Laura Sobel, and Alexis Amorosi. Co-writers Laura Sobel and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can hear every episode one week early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.